I'm back again today with Glenn, and we're continuing our series on what is the nature of life. And um, Glenn has got me now studying not only entropy, but the theory of computation. So before, before the day is out, he's going to have me a computer programmer. <laughs> so I'm really excited about today, Glenn. And I know that you, um, you wanted to start with a little bit on entropy before we move into the theory of computation stuff. So how did you want to go about this? Well, let's just touch on the, the entropy as the beginning of all of our talks, take it a little ways and then leave it with some questions to think about. And hopefully as we go through a lot, touch a little bit more on entropy each time and your viewers will gradually get a little deeper understanding, but baby steps. Okay. So okay. if we can start the video. Well, before we start the video, let me ask you one big question. Um, why is entropy so, why is understanding entropy to this level so important to our journey? Uh, because it's how life even happens. If it wasn't for the second law, there couldn't be life to begin with. There would be creativity. Um, everything would be reversible. In other words, if you made something, it would instantly disappear. Entropy is what allow something to stay in place once you've put it there. Um, uh, on the second hand, it's, it's where death comes from. So entropy is necessary for creation and it's also part of the process of decomposition or falling apart. So it's uh, the main facets of life, I think are captured right there. So it's not only a scientific question, it's a big metaphysical question as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, in terms of uh, questions for my faith, um, the quite like Darwinian selection, evolution, that's minor, that's pocket change compared to questions that physics will put to scripture. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking about, wondering. Mm -hmm. Cool, okay. okay. Well, let's, let's take a look at this video then and I tried to practice this so I wouldn't slow people down too much. Okay. <laughs> so here's the video and uh, share sound optimize for video clip. Here we go. And hopefully the sound will be better today than it has been. We're gonna play several minutes of this. <clears throat> and so the temperature differential can be reestablished. However, an inefficient engine will slowly deplete the difference in temperature, reducing the heat flow and the engine winds down. Around a half century after Carnot, Rudolf Clausius was inspired to quantify this tendency of heat energies to decay over time. Enter entropy. Clausius defined entropy as the internal property that changes as heat energy moves around within a system. Specifically, the change in entropy of each reservoir is the heat energy going into or out of that reservoir divided by its temperature. For a Carnot cycle, the overall change in entropy is zero. But for any less efficient cycle, entropy increases. In fact, an increase in entropy means that the heat reservoirs are approaching the same temperature, reducing their capacity to do useful work. Carnot and Clausius's work revealed entropy as a measure of how evenly spread out a system's energy is. The more evenly spread, the less useful the energy is. And for an isolated system, the best you can hope for is that the separation of energy and the entropy remain constant. In reality, it will almost always increase unless energy comes in from the outside to re-establish the temperature differential. This understanding of entropy is in terms of flowing heat, and it came from the days when many, including Carnot himself, believed that heat was a physical fluid called caloric. It took a revolution to understand the reality of entropy. That revolution was statistical mechanics, founded by the great Ludwig Boltzmann with his kinetic theory of gases. This theory explained thermodynamic behavior as the summed result of the individual motion of tiny particles under Newton's laws of motion. STATMEC is really astounding. It's founded on an absurdly simple idea. For a given set of large-scale observable properties, every possible configuration of particles that could give those properties is equally likely. Let's add some physics speak. By configuration, I mean the exact arrangement of positions, velocities, etc. of all microscopic particles. We call this the microstate. 
and we call the specific combination of large-scale macroscopic properties the macrostate. Macrostates are entirely defined by thermodynamic properties – temperature, pressure, volume and number of particles. For a given macrostate, all microstates consistent with its thermodynamic properties are equally likely. For some macrostates, there are lots of different microstates or arrangements of particles that lead to roughly the same thermodynamic properties, while other macrostates can be produced by only very few microstates. Okay, one more fact. If okay. So. So there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Um, this is one of the problems with some of the popularizations of physics is it's like they give you a puzzle with some of the pieces not quite fitting together. So you think you've understood everything, you start putting the puzzle together and then you start finding, wait a second, this piece doesn't quite, if I fit this piece this way, then it won't fit that way. And that is a lot of what just happened. Um, we did include uh, the timestamp 38 seconds. He talks about entropy as an emergent uh, from deeper laws. And I find that um, uh, a little confusing. And it gets back to our, our use of words like chaos. They have a, a meaning in natural language and then a more formal meaning in either math or physics. Uh, the term emergence or, emer you know, as a phenomena is used loosely in a conversation, but it does, you can give it a very specific mathematical definition. So I think when some of these um, talks use the word emergent in, um, without defining it clearly, it leaves you open to confusion down the road. Now, if we jump forward to where this- Well, hold on a second. So what is the precise mathematical definition of emergence? <clears throat> Well, the one I give it, because it's the most useful, is the notion of uh, threshold of complexity. When you pass a certain boundary inside and outside, it all of a sudden becomes simple again, becomes ordered again. And the outside, whatever's going on inside is now hidden from whatever's going on outside. And I, I think you can give that a pretty specific mathematical definition of interactions and rules. So that kind of goes back to Carl Friston's Markov blanket where- Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. So, yeah, I see, I see the connection. But emergence implies that you're emerging out of something. There has to be something more complicated underneath that somehow is organized itself and the whole becomes more than the sum of the parts. And I don't think entropy as a law of physics kind of fits that paradigm of thinking. Well, so if, if we go back to the watch example that you gave before, <clears throat> that the once you get outside the watch, the watch becomes easier to interact with, then if I'm thinking about the idea of deducibility, by looking at the outside of the watch, I could not in any way deduce what's going on on the inside. Pretty much what could be a mechanical wristwatch. It could be an old water clock from Roman times with dripping waters and gears. You wouldn't know what's inside. So is that a sign of emergence when I, when by looking at it from the outside, you can't deduce what's going on on the inside? That's one of the signs, yeah. And, so, and is that strong emergence or weak emergence or is it both? Oh, we'll have to talk about it. <laughs> that's, that's open to debate. I would, I would call it strong emergence. Okay. But you notice when you talk about an outside view, that implies that there's another realm outside where the properties of that system make sense. So uh, the clock, the watch makes sense in terms of time, the hours, minutes, seconds, because there's another realm out there where hours, minutes, and seconds is a, a, yet a new, useful or necessary concept. So- Wow, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, you can sort of meditate on this. Yeah, I, yeah. I see where you're going. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's... So we're gonna hit the same, same thing with entropy again. Okay. Uh, at the timestamp 220, he's talking about an engine, uh, perfectly efficient, doesn't deplete entropy. Well, what he's just said is that you're using the engine output to run a refrigerator 
to take the heat that you dumped back up into the heat reservoir. And yes, situation, the refrigerator would work and the engine would work and there would be no net transfer of heat or entropy. I'm not sure why you would want to do that and why the example was put in there because it doesn't seem to go anywhere. On uh, timestamp three, he talks about the temperature of the cold side always increases. Um, if ent the entropy can be, the change in entropy can be zero for a, perfect, for a perfectly efficient process, even though heat has been transferred. So the hot side gets colder and the cold side gets warmer, even if the transfer of entropy has been zero. The entropy has been moved from the hot side to the cold side, but the net change in entropy of the universe has not changed, even though the reservoirs are now different temperatures. I think that's a confusing point. Who's in there? Does that make sense? Because they're always talking about heat flow and entropy, but you can have heat flow without change in entropy. Or you can have a change okay, in entropy. So, well, the statement that the temperature of the cold side always increases is not an incorrect statement. It's only incorrect to say that that increases the entropy. Right, it's because of a, a change in entropy. So I think, that's what I mean about the puzzle pieces don't quite mix, mate. Um, if you start thinking about these statements in more detail, it's kind of leaves you a bit confused. Um, and then he mentions about Clausius, uh, thinking about energies being spread out, Carnot. I'm not sure that's historically correct, uh, that assertion. Uh, then he gets on at about timestamp 406 or thereabouts. He brings in statistical mechanics and Ludwig Boltzmann's approach. And that's where I think we need to step back and one of the terms that you used, uh, macro state versus micro state, and you've asked me in the past, is the thermodynamic variables correspond to the macro state? And I've probably been hesitant to answer that in the affirmative. So I'll try this example. You, you're gonna head north and you're gonna take a trip to San Francisco. The statistical Ludwig Boltzmann's description of your trip would be a picture of San Francisco and a stack of postcards from all the places you could have gone or things you could have done. So the microstates in this case is all the things that are potentially possible to do in San Francisco. And the macrostate is being in San Francisco. So I'm not sure, that's why I like the, to take the outside versus inside view. I know it's, it's sort of my personal approach to doing physics. But if I take the outside view, macro state just isn't being in San Francisco. It's the whole trip there. You know, what happened? There was a car wrecks, um, you know, flat tire. It was traffic flow. Just the macro state by itself doesn't tell you anything about the journey that it took to get there into that state. And as the micro states uh, in the statistical ensemble sense is just a list of all the policies there's not enough time in the day to do even one or two of those things, even, and here's where it gets interesting. There's not enough time in your life to do everything that can be done in San Francisco. So what does that mean to talk about the microstates being all the possible states a system can be in when um, there's not actually enough time in the life of the universe for some thermodynamic systems to visit every possible state? And so, and again, if you focus, if you look at the inside and just forget about the macro states, um, to me, it opens a up a much richer world because when I start looking at how um, the gas molecules in a box are moving around, then I, I ask about, well, collisions, and then how do they, they collide with the wall of the box? You know, the, the cylinder of the box. Walls are equal part of the thermodynamic system because that's where the momentum of the particle gets reversed. Otherwise, everything would just go off and never come back. The walls reflect the particle. A randomizing event. And then the walls are a thermodynamic system and they're getting their energy from something outside. So 
when I, when I pull things apart into that inside outside and then I can think about inside and then all the new questions come up. Whereas if you just think about the macro micro state, you tend to focus on the boundary. And um, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that, but it just, it, it keeps you from seeing a lot more complexity. So an answer to a question you've had, you sort of seems like it's come up was this, how do you associate the thermodynamic variables with the macro state? In some sense, yeah, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, but knowing the macro state doesn't tell you anything about how you got there. And that, that comes back to that example on emergence. The clock, hours, seconds, you know, minutes mean something because there's another world out there. Um, the pathway you, you took to get to your macro state of your thermodynamic system there's, there must be a whole other world out there that you're interacting with to get you there. And this, uh, the Boltzmann approach doesn't tell you any information about that. So that's why I'm reluctant to, to say that the macrostate exactly corresponds to thermodynamic variables. variables. And the same on the microstate side, it really hides a lot of complexity by just working with a statistical ensemble and not saying anything else. So are we okay so far? Yeah, so it sounds like we need something in physics that goes beyond Boltzmann in this field of entropy that they haven't gotten to yet. Uh, Non-equilibrium statistical mechanics, which is a realm all of its own, and I'm not competent to speak there. Um, one of the key things about the second law is how you get there. So if you have a perfectly efficient process, that's a process which is perfectly reversible. You can turn it around and go backwards at any moment and retrace your steps and end up to the original macro state you started from. But as soon as you introduce irreversible, irreversibility into your process, that's when entropy increases. But that, so what does it mean? Is it more important to say entropy increases or is it more important or fundamental to say you've broken reversibility and you can't go back now? So that's something to, to, to think about, wonder about. Uh, the other thing that- I'm guessing then that this whole thing about a perfectly efficient system being reversible also ties into the whole theory of computation and um, the way uh, computational systems are designed. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I'm, on, I'm tracking with you. <laughs> yeah, computer couldn't work if the world was reversible because whatever your computer did would, by the same token, just undo itself and go backwards and we couldn't tell the difference. So, um, so that's second law, it's, it's trying to tell you something about the arrow of time. And that's one of the things I'm intrigued about and I haven't really seen much in physics to deal with it, but possibly the arrow, arrow of time already has a direction, in which case the second law would be a consequence of that. And that explains irreversibility in general. But that's a, a job for some young grad student, not for me. And the last thing I've noticed, he goes on after you ended the, the video talking about the Go board, the game board with mm -hmm. all the playing pieces and how um, probabilities and counting states. And again, I think I've noticed people confuse counting with somehow with entropy. But remember, entropy is about um, energy. Clausius's term is, is a transformational current, just telling you how energy moves. And so simply counting states doesn't really connect to entropy unless there's a relationship between the states and energy. And his simple talk about uh, arrangements of uh, pieces on a go board does include that concept that energy has to be included in the discussion somehow. Now, if you get into quantum mechanics, it, the job is done for you because the energy states all are associated with mechanical energy levels. So at the quantum mechanics level, you get energies for free when you count states. But in the classical sense, it's 
is fuzzy. And I'm not really want to go too much deeper there. So, but that's one thing that's missing is that there has to be some connection between the energies and the configurations. Otherwise, the discussion isn't really useful. So I think we're pretty much exhausted what I wanted to talk about. Okay. And, and now you want to move on to computational theory. Right, unless you had any more questions about it. And, uh, uh, no, no, I'm good. Okay. Okay, computational theory. This is probably a new one for most people. And it's um, start with, well, let's go back to Carl first. Asking the question in sort of a general sense, what is it we're looking at when we say something is alive? What, it, what qualifies as life? And one of the, he talks about the ink drop and and how it expands, but if it contracted and started doing things. So one of the, the signa, uh, signals that, we're, that we look for when we say something is acting like it's alive is this notion of processing. You know, sensory states, some kind of processing um, modality, and then active states where the system acts back on its environment. And it's, it looks like it's doing something on purpose. So I would like to call that process, um, just call it intelligence. I think I mentioned this in emails before, is that we use in the word intelligent to mean as a, as a thing, something that is people have, rather than um, talk about intelligence as a process. So we should say things act intelligently, or something is acting with intelligence, or something is demonstrating intelligence. So it's the um, example of the watch again, if you found a watch laying out in the middle of the desert, you know some intelligent agent made it because it is, um, demonstrates intelligence in how it operates. So that's one of the things I want to try and get to is that's one of the hallmarks that we look for when we're saying something is alive. And of course that by itself is not life. There's other things to life. One of them is its ability to eat and survive and reproduce. But uh, acting intelligently is the fundamental thing where Carl Friston is trying to, to, he captures that, but I'm not sure. He's modeling what happens in between the sensory and the active using statistics, but a model isn't necessarily what is actually happening. And that's where I want to dive into the theory of computation. Could I? intervene and show you a little video clip that I ran into on the, the theory of computation that I just was completely delighted by. Okay, well, we'll take my chance. <laughs> okay, I'll bring it up here. <clears throat> and I need to get to this other video here. Okay. do in this subject. We are going to design systems or machines which can take certain kind of inputs and this machine will be based on some rules and it should either accept the input or reject the input. So this will be the thing that we will be doing. Don't worry even if it is a little unclear right now when we take uh, other examples and when we start from the very basics from the following lectures it will all become very clear. I think that's enough to get, make That's pretty much it. <laughs> I was so delighted by that um, because when I saw that picture, I thought that's what Glenn is talking about when he talks about the key in the lock. Mm -hmm. There's a, the, the key is the input. The output is that the door opens and the, the, what happens in the center is a process that's based on some sort of intelligence. It's thinking. Mm -hmm. The lock is not thinking, but but something has been programmed into the lock to allow it to make that decision. And then, then I thought about this um, interview I did with one of the founders of Aromics, which is a company that digitizes smell and taste. 
and he was explaining to me all of his research in neuron neuronal processing, which he started out with vision. And then when he was tapped to be part of this company, he started exploring smell and taste. And they're basically the same kind of neurons in our brain, but they're just doing different functions. And he was explaining that, that um, there are these small receptors or neurons that respond to various chemical compounds. And one example he gave was a certain seven, cha seven carbon chain. And when the, the, they have a receptor that responds to that particular seven carbon chain, which I can't remember what smell he said it was, but he said it will also respond to an eight carbon or a six carbon, but not as closely as it does to the seven carbon because that one fits like a key in a lock. <laughs> and, and he was talking about earlier, he was in the video, he was talking about how our visual sensors, uh, there's a mechanism in them where the, the input comes in and it's like a key going into a lock. They, they fit together like puzzle pieces and it will only react when it's, that mechanism happens and then it unlocks and then it does things. And yeah, you can go all the way down to the very basic, the very first life. Mm -hmm. I mean, the before life had that, before life happened, there had to be some way in which this lock mechanism was there already. That's way, that's way prebiotic. I mean, it's obviously it's still part of chemistry and physics, but am I a good student? Yes, you are. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm old enough to remember going to the theater when they had smell-o-vision and you got oh, a little no. scratch card. I never heard of that. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had an interesting life when I was young. So, as, yeah, the theory of computation is, I've heard it described as the hardest class that someone in uh, CS has to take. It's right up there with math logic as an upper division course. And it, it starts with set theory and you develop the, the notion of languages. Um, and I don't want to even start on it because it's, it's quite deep. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is, that I want to get to is that when I say computation, I think most people will think of a computer running a program operating system, but there are computational structures way simpler. And the, and the simplest one is, is what's called a state machine. And it, you can have as simple as two states um, and that's capable of computation. And I've always liked that key and lock example that you first came up with as a demonstration of a, of a computation and what is the minimum um, device or mechanical system you can imagine that would actually qualify as a computer. And uh, so if we can get that over, get your viewers to grok that, that's the big step. Is that the key, the, the universe of keys is, is the universe of consciousness for the lock. If you wanna, if we're allowed to use that word what you're conscious of is the things that, is the information that makes sense that is usable to you. So um, yeah, a blind person would not be conscious of colors or a deaf person would not be conscious of, of sounds that would not be part of their, their world. So when we say consciousness, we're often, it's relative to whatever's doing the, the information gathering. So you put the key in, now the block, mechanism itself makes the computation. The, the height on, on the key um, profile sets the different tumblers or whatever it is they're called inside. And if the, the key has the exact right profile, then the lock mechanism will allow itself to turn. Now, in this case, the lock mechanism has a model of what it's looking for in the Friston sense, you know, the, mm -hmm. it's, the system is comparing its input uh, with a model it holds inside. And then depending on how it matches up, it will make an action. So 
the computation is comparing the model in the lock with the key. And if it compares, yes, then it, it will unlatch. And I think for me, that's a simple, but I, I'm afraid that a lot of people will kind of go, what? There's no program there. There's no, um, nothing's happening. There's no thinking process. There's no gates. So the well, idea is that- Hold on a second. Um, is that it's not fundamentally different than the old mechanical adding machines? No, not at all. No. Yeah, because that was the same kind of a, of a thing. The, the mechanical adding machines had tumblers and then they would, they would react to a certain mm -hmm. mechanical object that comes in and it tumbles and, and then there would be an output. I mean, isn't that considered, that's not considered a program? That's well, um, yeah, I would consider. I just, I think people, when they think program, they think of source code, you know, Python or C. And they don't stop and think that a program could simply be part of the construction of the device itself. Well, I think one of the things that I want to, I want to add to this, um, add to the description of this video is a wonderful video that I watched on, on a, one of the first mechanical adding machines. And um, it was an adding machine. In order to do complex computations, it had to have a memory. So it would do the computations and the memory in this adding machine was actually a, like a similar to a piano wire that was coiled up in the back of the machine. And mm -hmm. the, the, the first input would come through and it would cause that wire to vibrate. And, and as it was moving around, that, that information was available for the next element of the computation that had to take place so that when it came back around, the two could connect up and, and that memory was useful. And I thought, that's the most amazing thing I ever heard. Who could have thought that up? That memory could be stored in a piano wire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love that. <laughs> yeah, when well, when I was was young, we there's a bunch of us nerdy kids. We'd hang out at the local surplus stores, and I remember at one time a bunch of those uh, they call them acoustic uh, memories. Basically, it's just a shift register that, that works by sound. It ended up in one of the junk bins, so we had fun playing with them. And there was a lot of ways to do memory before even core, uh, magnetic core, which is long gone. So yeah. Um, well, I especially like that one because Jordan Peterson has this wonderful riff that he does where he talks about if you twist the fabric of reality, it's going to snap back at you at some point. And I thought that sounds like he's saying that there's a memory in the fabric of reality, mm -hmm. you know, just like there's a memory in that piano wire. Yeah, that's a bit of wisdom that's probably been around for thousands of years. Yeah. You keep kicking down, cans down the road until one day a wall of cans fall on you. Yeah. But another way I thought about it um, in reference to one of your commenters is um, dance. I thought you can, you can practice a dance, you can learn it, you can visualize it, you can go, but eventually if you practice it enough, don't even have to think about it and, and that might be a sense where something has has gone into your fabric and you so you don't know have to think about it anymore your body just does intelligence is built in now i imagine playing instruments sports a lot of things are like that mm -hmm. so are we comfortable with the fact that a mechanical system can represent a program running on on a, a, a computational system. I'm comfortable with it. Okay, I, I, don't well, I just assumed it would be hard. So. Carl was on here, <laughs> but Carl's not here. So we can say anything we want to. <laughs> That's okay. So, but then I, I mentioned in one of the emails um, that there is a correspondence actually between the mechanical side and a language. There are hardware description languages and the one I've worked with in the past is Verilog. But you can describe a computational system 
on a piece of source code with you know, English words. And that source code can be read by a compiler and a bunch of other software tools. And that's turned into uh, traces on a silicone die. So that's how a lot of the chips are actually designed. They actually write code in a special kind of language. And those, that, those code words get translated into <clears throat> a piece of working hardware. So, <clears throat> sorry. So there doesn't have to be an intermediary step between the, the, um, the language itself and the traces on the die. It's not like somebody is taking the output from that language and then physically looking at the schematic of the die and adding pieces in there. There's no, no, you, yeah. there's no intermediary step. It just happens from the computer to the die. It's not even humanly possible at this point. Yeah. Maybe in the early days of IC design, you could do it, but not, not when you've got you know billion transistors on a, a chip. So, so you were talking earlier about with Verilog that a person can have a, you know, what we would just call an abstract idea of something that you want the computer to accomplish, and that using Verilog, um, you can take this idea that's just a thought mm -hmm. and it actually becomes a mechanical piece of equipment once the once the silicon die is finished right right i don't know if it's just me but i find that almost magic to 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 imagine that something can go from just an idea of no physical substance and actually turn into a piece of silicone that does a, a job and for me, that's the essence of creativity, is the ability to take something which is just merely an idea and turn it into something that's physically real. So that's my- well, I mean, that's not, that's not so far off from thinking about a wheel and making a wheel or thinking about mm -hmm. a steam engine and making a steam engine. It's just that we've severely bypassed all the intermediary steps now. <laughs> right, and said so we don't really appreciate that anymore. Well, it's also a little terrifying because that means there doesn't need to be any human intermediary steps. So robots could begin reproducing themselves using that mechanism. Cyborg, here we come. <laughs> yeah, well. That's <laughs> a little terrifying. There's a lot more problems. I know people worry about the AI, you know, the Terminator robot and all these horrible things, but yeah, Battlestar Galactica is the one that gives me nightmares. <laughs> but my response is, is there's no such thing as artificial intelligence. There is only intelligence, and that's a, a property of a living system. So the first truly artificial, artificially intelligent, you know, artificial general intelligence system will be the first artificial life form. And so I'm personally more worried about the first artificial mosquito than I will be about the first Terminator robot. I think artificial mosquitoes could probably do a lot more damage as a weapon, weaponized. But anyway, that's a bit of science fiction now. Getting back to the, the concept of theory of computation, uh, what I find really fascinating is there's two halves to it. There's an abstract half, and then there's the more physical half. Um, one side, the abstract half starts with set theory and we, you develop the notion of what a um, alphabet is, a word, a sentence, and you have languages and there's grammars that generate languages um, and it gets complicated up from there. But for everything on the abstract side, there's a computational system, which you might say is, is a way to physically instantiate um, what the computational process is. And as you might guess, there's a whole hierarchy of, of computational uh, systems. They're actually called languages. And you don't say a system runs a program, you say it recognizes a language, but that's, um, that's just computer. Uh, that's just theoretical jargon. Uh, but what's fascinating is if you can cast an intelligent process into the language of computational language and set theory, then it tells you how to make 
a mechanical or a physical device that will run that program or recognize that language. So getting back to the, our, our original goal was to come up with a definition of what an artificial um, non-biological life form would be to give to our physics and chemists a design team so they can make the first non-biological life form. That's one of the hints I would say is to tell the physicist, okay, here's what you have to do. If you can cast it into the language of computation, then it will tell you what you need to do in terms of a physical structure. And then you just give that information to the chemist and then the chemist can build whatever that is using the chemistry of the early earth. Okay, so that, uh, that's, a, that's an abstract idea that's a little hard for me to grapple with. So just let me walk it through with you. If you can cast it into the language of computation, that language will tell you what the structure needs to look like. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, so one of the interesting videos I was watching today um, was the backstory on how the Turing machine came to be. And she went into the history of David Hilbert's idea of um, building a formal system for mathematics and that mm -hmm. there were three parameters or something that it needed to meet. And one of them was decidability and um, Turing began when he was 22 years old, began playing with that idea about how would you determine decidability? And it was because he was working on that question that he came up with the idea of the Turing machine of the machine that ended up bearing his name as a way of, of trying to prove or disprove this whole decidability thing. And he came to the conclusion that Hilbert was wrong. There's no way to build that formal mm -hmm. system. Um, but it was because he was trying to answer that question that he ended up with a machine. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That mm -hmm. Yeah, you start with an abstract question. What is life? He, he developed a language of computation, which for mm -hmm. him was zeros and ones. Right. And, and and that the just thinking through, well, if I had these zeros and ones, how are the zeros and ones going to decide what to do? And that was then he backed up from that and ended up with the machine that the, the process itself told him what the machine should look like. Actually, it's more complicated than that. Zeros and ones is just an artifact of the electronics or relays we've used. But the actual language of computation just talks about symbols. It's, it's so abstract and crude, the symbols don't have to actually mean anything. They're just the symbols and rules on how to stick symbols together. Mm -hmm. And so the, the true false comes down the road a little bit, but computation is a little bit more fundamental than ones and zeros. Um, well, I was just trying to, I was trying to find a concrete example that my head could use about this mm -hmm. idea that if you can once cast it into the language of computation, then it will tell you what the structure should look like that will produce that computation, computational mm -hmm. structure. It's kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm still not there, but keep going, I'll keep listening. Yeah, so the Turing machines are, are at the, the top end of the hierarchy. It starts with just simple state machines. So you can have FSM, a, finite state machines. That's the yes, mm -hmm. yeah. okay. deterministic and non-deterministic. And then uh, I, I forget, I read it, I study it, and then I forget, you know, a week later, all of the terms. So now I've lost my train of thought, sorry. Well, you were talking about the, the first artificial non-biological life form that you, you have when you want to tell the physic, physicists and chemists how to produce the first artificial non-biological life form, it's going to have to conform to these things. And the first one was that once you cast it into the language of computation, it will tell you what the structure will look like. Mm -hmm. And a list of other things that went with that, I think. Right. It has to, to be self-sustaining, has to be able to harvest energy, feed itself, maintain itself, and it has to be able to reproduce. So those are two other additional criteria. But I'm thinking if, you know, as a design engineer, the first thing you want to do is get the, the most bare minimum proof of principle benchtop experiment going that you possibly can. 
And so as the physicist and chemist design team, the first thing they would want to do is get some kind of chemical device that acts as a logic switch. And there actually is, I've, you know, I've been searching, uh, they're using proteins as logic gates, which I find very interesting. I think that's, that's if, if I was a biologist or a researcher, I, I would start there. Because the folding of the, the protein acts like a switch, but like a relay. And so you can use the folding of the proteins to form a computational structure. And at this point, I'm out of my league. Well, isn't, the, isn't protein folding already a biological form though, not a, not a chemical form? Or? Mm, no, I think uh, folding of proteins is to be strictly chemical. I mean, that, that's the chemistry you could do with the early earth. Because um, you, uh, you create proteins by, you know, all of those different methods of cooking and baking and drying out and zapping with electricity. Well, you can sure, come but, up with protein. I thought, I thought that those proteins were just strings and that, that it was something to do with life that actually caused the proteins to fold up in, in particular configurations. Mm, I think you could turn it around and say life happens because it can fold up in certain configurations. And if you get the right proteins folding in the right way, it can form a comp computational structure. That's... That's my suggestion. Okay. okay. And uh, people are free to comment and, and uh -huh. flame me for it if they want. So. I obviously need to do lots more research. <laughs> well, we can come back to this. Too many you know. microstates in the universe for me. <laughs> uh, so let me, but getting back to the proteins in, in terms of what goes on in the cell, uh, this is one of the things that, uh, what is it's called, the RNA polymerase. It's the, it's the thing that transcribes the DNA. So there's actually a protein that folds up and copies the DNA and then creates this messenger RNA that goes out and then gets converted into other proteins. And what I wanted to suggest is that that RNA you know, the protein molecule that decodes the, the DNA is, is like a little computational structure, just like the, the lock and key mechanism. It it's acting intelligently because it's just simply built to do that. So I think we start to get into that intelligent design um, area that's a bit touchy because people want to say or would like to say that intelligence has to come from outside and what physics seems to be telling us is that intelligence can come from just the basic structure of how something is put together. So you can uh, um, create an intelligently acting system from just throwing pieces together. That's um, a challenge to the intelligent design argument, but that's a, another argument for another day. Well, sure, but even the intelligently acting pieces that you put together are acting intelligently. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, there's there's something, there has to be something, as you said before, outside the boundary. If, if you take it all the way back and you go back before life and there has to be a lock and key mechanism and what you give an example of a, a protein mm -hmm. folding, protein folding, <clears throat> that's not accidental that's already computational and then you could take it back before that and whatever that was that's also not accidental mm -hmm. anytime that a lock fits into a key i mean a key fits into a lock and and unlocks that, that is, there's an input and there's a process and there's an output and If you go back to the beginning of the universe, when there's just helium and hydrogen, and they go through certain physical functions in the midst of stars, and somehow that's how all the other chemicals are produced, that's happening according to some law. 
there's yeah. some law that makes those things happen. Mm -hmm. That's a key in a lock. I mean, you, you can't go far enough back to where there's not a key in a lock. Right. So whatever we call intelligence has to be embedded in the laws of physics in some way or another. That's one of the big mysteries that uh, in foundations of physics that are not, will never be touched because it would be academic suicide to try it, career suicide for any physicist to go there. But yeah. yet it's one of those questions that sits out there and, and is waiting to be answered. Yeah, okay. So, so I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. You said- No, I, I think I've gone as far as I was prepared to go. So you can keep Okay, so the questions. RNA polymerase was the last thing you wanted to talk about? Right, and just imagine that that's, displaying an intelligent system. There's input, there's uh, choices being made, if, if I could use that word, switches, you know, yes, no, else, if, then, uh, mechanical or chemical bonds, shape-shifting is happening with an output, an active state output. And so I would say that those proteins are demonstrating intelligence in how they function. So that's my, my thesis and I'm sure there's people who will disagree with that, but it, it works. It's, well, I, I always choose definitions that some, work. Yeah, it would be fun to get some, some disagreement going in the comment section and we would all learn something from it, right? Mm -hmm. So what did you want to talk about next time? I mean, I know you want to proceed on with entropy because there's obviously something at the bottom of that, but um, mm -hmm. where, do, where do we go from here? Well, I think we can start introducing the notion of emergence. Okay. And, uh, and I, I'm going to think about it some more. I'll put some ideas during the week. I'll let you know. But to me, this is a big thing. Um, seeing that computation can happen at a very simple level and that there's a process of input, output, and decision-making. And it's irreversible because once a decision is made, you can't always go back. So there's a certain irreversibility associated with uh, computation, which sort of gets you back to Landauer's principle. Um, and it also goes back to that original question that I threw out between predictability and, what was the other word? I'm having a senior Yeah. Um, sorry. Well, so yeah, because be, supposedly between strong emergence and weak emergence, one is not one is not predictable, and the other one is not decidable, mm -hmm. right? Or something like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of deterministic. Okay. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah. So. You can have predictable and deterministic. You can have not predictable and deterministic, which is chaotic motion. You can have something that's both not predictable and non-deterministic. That would be random, random number generator. But then there's that question, can something be predictable but not deterministic? And I suggested that that's where computation falls in. Is predictable from an outside point of view because we as outside observers know the program, but mother nature doesn't know what the program is. So for mother nature, the outcome is indeterministic, undeterministic. So that's something to stretch your brain around. And I think that's the, that's the glitch in the matrix that allows computation to happen and eventually life. Okay, well, that's homework for me because I really have to think that one through. And I know, it, it, it takes a lot of wrestling um, to get there. I did want to clarify something. You had said, I thought I heard you say earlier that computation would not be possible if, if what goes on in computation were not reversible. But then I thought I just heard you say now that computation is not reversible. Did I misunderstand something? Mm. That computers, computers need to have reversibility in there. No, that would not be the case. Um, okay, so- Because uh, an AND gate is a simple example of something that's not reversible. Okay. You have two inputs and one output and 
knowing the output, you can't tell what the input was with any reliability. So, um, so that's what you mean by not reversible. You can't look back and figure out what gave you the answer that you had. Right. You can't, you can't always tell what the inputs were uniquely from the output. Got it. Okay. That, that's a different definition of, of irreversible than I was thinking about. So that makes much more sense. But it does map into thermodynamics. That's one of those abstract areas in mathematical physics. Mm -hmm. That there is a crossover. Yeah, because once the once the excess heat energy goes out into the universe and just starts increasing the heat entropy of the universe or whatever, you can't. Um, you don't have enough information to put it back together again the way yeah. it was, right? You can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again because you've lost the information. And that's why black holes, um, yeah, okay. Uh, I don't want to go there. That's, that's an area I need to spend time with. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's my next personal challenge is to dive into that because it's, it's quite opaque to me. But a final note is, uh, going back to our original Paul Davies talk on the demon in the machine, or uh, there's a, information is a big buzzword now, and biology is all about information. DNA is encoded information. And it's worth noting that information only makes sense if there's something using the information. And that's why I think computation in the end is more fundamental than information. Information by itself isn't isn't useful for anything unless there's a computational system using it. And whatever the computational system is defines what information is useful and things that aren't information. So uh, um, that's, if I think about the watch again, the watch example, um, The watch only makes sense if someone is, the, the watch from the outside only makes sense if someone is using the information that the watch is producing. And um, it's that outside observer that defines what is useful about the system that's on the inside. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Okay, so there has to be something on the outside that's using the information. Mm -hmm. So back to entropy, if you're talking about macro states, then you're implying that there's, there's a world out there in which the macro state has some kind of meaning. Not just the macro state by itself mathematically, but there's a whole other play or universe going on out there of things. Well, so are micro states and macro states, are they, are they nested all the way up so that microstates are inside the macrostates and then then there's another layer of microstates inside another layer of macrostates well, and you it goes can, all the way out into the universe. You could say the macrostates now can clump up. If you get enough uh, individuals of the same macrostate, they can start acting as little individuals. And if there's rules of interaction, uh, social dynamic that allows the particles or individuals to interact with each other, uh, then they form a new microstate system, which another layer up of a macrostate. Mm -hmm. That's the essence of emergence is layers. That's one. Uh, well, so if you just keep going out and out and out with that, which you would, right? Then there also yeah. has to be something outside of our universe that is fundamental. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I don't want to create career suicide for you, Glenn, but come on. I mean, that's... no, no, I'm retired. No one cares. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. It's like I say, sitting around at the college coffee shop talking crazy thoughts in the middle of the night. So, but yeah, there's as social creatures, we human beings are forming microstates in a larger macrostate. That's one of the fun things to contemplate. So there's something higher up than us of which we are just parts of. Mm -hmm. So what might that bigger, higher, all encompassing macro state might be?
So one well, could I'm say looking that's... forward to next week and uh, you want to move on with emergence then you'll let me know. And if there's anything that you want to um, put in the notes to this one, let me know. I'm, I'll, okay, I think I'll, I've let you know what, what... For the videos that I already have, I'll right. put in the notes and, and then we'll get together again next week. Okay. On episode six. <laughs> well, well, thanks for this adventure. You're giving me an excuse to think about stuff I wouldn't otherwise spend time on. But it's been fun. Well, it's really good for me because I'm learning so much. I mean, I nothing else in the world would have ever gotten me to look at computer theory. I mean, nothing. Yeah. Well, as Jordan Peterson says, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, this has been great, Glenn. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time yeah. and your intellect. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, have a good week. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.